The Matrix was a film a generation old. I discover this all the time as I reference it or friends of mine reference it and people look at them with that sort of dazed deer in the headlights, what are you talking about? What is the Matrix? Which is, interestingly enough, the central question of the movie, but that's for another day. There is a metaphor in the Matrix, uh, and it's referred to as the blue pill and the red pill. You take the red pill, and you are enabled to see the world as it really is. In the blue pill, you get to stay in kind of your induced coma fog where you don't see things the way they really are. And uh, recently, uh, I, by hanging out with Stephen Crawford, who is our multi-talented college um, seminary pastoral intern, he, he does it all, and he reads like voraciously. And uh, one of the things he mentioned to me was that the, the whole metaphor for, uh, for coming alive by virtue of the taking the red pill has taken on a negative connotation in our culture, it has now become associated with uh, a somewhat, if I'm, I think, being fair in describing it, misogynistic male rights movement. Uh, if you don't know what the male rights movement is, allow me to do some brief descriptions for you. They, they refer to it as the Red Pill Movement, and there's actually a documentary made about it called The Red Pill, a feminist, she takes a documentary's uh, filmmakers look at this whole, and it's really a fair treatment of it. Um, there, there's a lot you could learn from watching this documentary. But at the same time, as you read the tenets of those who are participants in this red pill movement, you notice that the men don't believe that marriage is worth the risk They are men who would state they want to be free from social expectations as much as women do. They are men that believe that they've been taught to treat their girlfriends or wives like queens, but yet have been surprised that their significant other doesn't respect them because they see that as a sign of weakness. When you dig even more deeply into what is spurning this group of guys, or spurring this group of guys to to say we, we want to be men, men as we define. They are men tired of seeing their sexuality being demonized or men that somehow now see being assertive and putting yourself first is not a bad thing. As you start to dig deeper, you start to realize a lot of these tenets actually contradict the descriptions Jesus gives of how men are supposed to behave as servants. So why would a red pill men's rights movement actually be getting traction in our culture? One writes, quote, because men are realizing that the sexual marketplace has shifted away from what we've been taught. Men who grew up over 30 years ago are discovering the world has changed. They're realizing that what their parents taught them, what television and chick flicks taught them, what church and Sunday school taught them, it's all wrong. These men say they aren't isolating themselves from women, but instead choosing not to get married or be in traditional relationships. A large portion of red pill discussion revolves around evolutionary psychology, which is the notion that we are a product of evolution, making choices based on the primal instinct of the survival of the fittest. 
Christian sociologists and pastors have been saying for over a century that this will be the natural outgrowth of a worldview that does not have God in the mix. Human beings are then going to be reduced to chance byproducts of nature with no real foundation for morals, which then creates an environment where human beings start acting like animals. Animals whose primary drive is to satisfy their own selfish needs for survival. This is effectively what you see in this gender identity world. One of these male red pill writers writes, I am here to say, for better or for worse, the frame around public discourse is a feminist frame, and we, men, have lost our identity because of it. This is part of the problem. It's the notion that you could actually find your identity in being a particular gender. These are the prime subjects in our culture. This is the issue du jour. Do you have the right to define your own identity? Today's gospel study is in part going to give us some direction about the Christian's identity. And here's really the problem if you're a Christian and you find your life identity in anything but Christ and what his word says about who you are. It will put you at odds with those Christians who don't confirm your bias. If you define gender relationships contrary to scripture, you will end up at war with people who are thinking in evolutionary terms about survival and dominance and power instead of service and sacrifice, which, according to Mark 10, 45, is the way of Jesus. A couple quick reflections before we even dive into the text, if you'll permit me. This critique of the red pill movement is made from Scripture. It is a scriptural assessment of a worldview. Scripturally prophetic analysis is in part what the local church and what pastors should do. It's what you should do. Gracious and tr- graciously and truthfully, it's loving to point out to a young man who's being pulled into this misogynistic world based on nothing found in Scripture but the primal human instinct to dominate others, that what they're getting into will harm them. Problem is we can't pick and choose when our scriptural assessment offends a segment of culture. In this particular case, I could probably get amens from everybody around Los Angeles. But if I pick another subject where scripture would comment on an issue, it might not be received so well. And this is what Christians have to be able to do. They have to be able to say, I'm not going to change what scripture says about life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust the Lord. I'm going to graciously and truthfully if someone comes into my orbit, show them what Jesus has to say about life. But because people don't respond to it affirmatively, if the whole world became misogynistic men's movement people overnight, that wouldn't mean we would adapt our message of the gospel to try to reach them. We would simply say, God, for whatever reason, isn't moving in your section of the world because if you want to follow Jesus... You're going to be the servant of all. If you're going to be a husband, you're going to give your life to your wife. You are going to be like Christ and the church. You are her servant. That's the way of Jesus. 
See, we can't adjust and we can't pick. You have to actually expect. Jesus said, if, you, if they hated him, they're, they're likely going to hate you too. So we're encouraged to put God's word first and foremost in our lives, what God says about the world around us. What we see in our world, let alone today's text, is people crying out for security through attachment to an identity group. This is why specialized cable news channels are such a big hit. People find what sociologists and communication scholars call confirmation bias. You go to the news source that tells you exactly what you want to say. It's true online. It's true in the blogosphere. It's even true on television to a degree. People run to places where people will tell them what they already think is true and confirm it. People want security. It's a core need. And it's actually what's happening in our text today. In our Gospel of John study, we are now going to move out of the study of the prologue, which is the first 18 verses of John 1, and into the first six days of Jesus' ministry. But a quick reflection back on what the purpose of the Gospel of John is. The, The first part of our studies have been Once again, the proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God. And we see this in John 1, verses 29 through 32. The next day, as Jesus, uh, uh, he saw Jesus coming toward him, it says, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. What John is saying is, the gospel of John is saying is, Jesus is God. This is the primary purpose for the gospel of John, that we'd be able to point out that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so every, at every point in the gospel, we're going to be referring back to this confirmation, this reality. And in the case of John, in a, verses 6 through 8 of John 1, It says of him, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So we see even in the prologue a a, a showing that we're going to talk about John the Baptist. He's not the Messiah. He's here to point to the Messiah. And, And now we get to look at this as the first of the first six days of Jesus's earthly ministry a sequence that is six days intentionally because the author at the end of his gospel is actually going to have the six last days of Jesus' ministry. Every time I come to a text to prepare a sermon, and this would be true if you study scripture on your own, there are some questions that we ought to ask. And in many ways, the questions are going to be what our sermons are, a sermon is about today. Uh, the Pharisees' questions of John the Baptist. A question that I might ask along the way. A question that you might have to answer as a product of listening today. Um, Two questions I ask when I look at this particular section and any section of text. I would say, what was the purpose of John's inclusion of this information in his gospel account? And I would also want to know, what is the purpose of the Jews' questions in the context of what was going on? in John the Baptist's world. So to not confuse you between 
John the Gospel of Writer and John the Baptist. I'm just going to refer to John the Baptist as JTB. That's because we're friends and it makes me feel like uh, I'm really cool and relevant. But JTB, John the Baptist, is the one being written about by the Gospel of John writer, John. And, and the first question that this delegation from Jerusalem brings to John, which is relevant to us, to JTB, to the Baptist, is who are you? This is a central question of life, and it was of great concern to the leadership. I read again in verses 19 through 23 of John 1, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is the testimony of God. This is the way this starts out. And this is the testimony of John. John, the gospel writer, includes this passage to bring further testimony to the validity of the Savior's ministry. JTB, John the Baptist's ministry, was expanding its influence in the wilderness. It's imperative for us to kind of get a geographical appreciation for the nature of where John was in relationship to Jerusalem. So this map of Israel will be real similar to Los Angeles. In the sense that Jerusalem is like L.A., it's close to the ocean, it's kind of where the action is, all right? And, and where John was baptizing in, in Bethany was out by the Dead Sea, beyond the Dead Sea, so it would be like, like John was out in Coachella, all right? He's out in the Coachella Valley having a festival, you know, and, and people are trucking out there into the middle of the desert, it, and, and you know, the Jewish leaders are like, I would like to know what's going on out there, but I don't want to go out in the desert. I mean, that's really effectively what they're saying. We're not going to haul. And they didn't have cars or jets or anything. They, they would have had to have rode out there. So imagine how long that would have taken on a donkey in the heat. So you can understand why they'd send a delegation. What is going on? So he's got this big crusade environment going on, a big festival environment going on. People are coming from all over the place, and the Jews want to know, who are you? What are you doing out here? And they ask him three questions, three, spe three specific questions. Christians refer to John as the last Old Testament prophet because he preceded our Savior Jesus. But because of his success, the delegation came and they asked, are you the Christ, are you Elijah, or are you the prophet? They really had three conceptions in their head of what or who he must be to be attracting these kind of crowds. So the first question is, what they're expecting is a Messiah. They wanted a Messiah. Uh, the Roman Empire, they were in sort of an unhealthy sort of partnership with. Uh, they, didn't, um, they weren't bucking the system so much, but they really wanted to be their own people and felt like as a nation they wanted to be the kingdom of God and kingdom of Israel. And so they were, in their minds, thinking there's going to come a Messiah who's going to make all of this political stuff just right for us. And they ask John, and he says, no, that's not me. And then they say, are you Elijah? 
and there was a, a, a notion, an interpretation of an Old Testament prophecy that Elijah was going to actually come again before the Messiah. In John 17, Jesus discredits this. Uh, and so the response that the Baptist says to the Pharisees people is, no, I'm not, I'm not that one either. And then they say, are you the prophet? And this is a reference to when Moses said there was going to be another super prophet coming at a certain time. And, he, and, and this was one of the other things they were sort of expecting. And John the Baptist says, no, I'm not, I'm not that guy either. And at some point, they say again, well, who the heck are you? I mean, that's the modern version of it. But who are you? What is going on out here? And John refuses to fit inside the, their boxes. Uh, his answer effectively says, I am not God. I am God's. I am not here to be a Savior. I'm here to point to a Savior. He identifies himself first according to what the Scriptures say. He finds his life identity rooted in God's direction for his life. The Baptist says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness as the prophet Isaiah said. So he has a perspective on who he is, that he's created by God, for God. His identity is wrapped up not in what their expectations of him would be, not in even what, as a human being, his expectations of life would be. He says, this is who I am. Who am I? This is who I am. I'm the one that Scripture talks about in this way. It's not unusual for uh, a passionate person of God in John's era, somebody who was zealously following the Lord to look to Scripture. Isaiah didn't just say he would be a, a voice crying out in the wilderness. Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 64, 8 would have told him exactly what he said to them. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And This is a tough sell for some. You might think, you know, as a person who's here on a Sunday morning, you know, I, I'm okay with the idea that God is God and I am his creation, but most of us, by nature, don't like the idea of somebody else ruling our world. Most of us are priding ourselves on our self-determination. We're finding our identity in who we are compared to other people or how successful we are in our business or what others think of us. This is sort of kind of the default and again, John is giving us an example of somebody who says, no, life is not about you. It's about who created you. And when you look at a, a young, immature group of young men powering together around the idea of their own need to dominate as their evolutionary psychology would dictate to them they should, you think that's really immature. That's not, that's not enlightened. That's... That's like acting like a child. Interestingly enough, I'm reading a book these days called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And its author, Peter Scazzaro, says this. Many of us 
are like a baby. A baby screams for his mother to feed and take care of him. He is the center of the universe with others existing to care for his needs. He suffers from grandiosity, arrogance, childishness. Growing up will require learning he is not the center of the universe. The universe does not exist to meet his every need. That is a painful lesson for all of us to learn. Our egos tend to be so inflated that we act as if we were God. We are gods. This is what John says. Who am I? I I am God's. I am who God says I am. I'm in submission to God. New City Catechism, week four. I heard you earlier. How and why did God create us? God created us male and female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. This is why God created human beings. To know him. To love him. To live with him. And to glorify him. And Our application point, what we take from the example of John the Baptist is to say our real identity is to be found in being the created child of the Father. When our identity is found in our success, our position, our wealth, our politics, our gender, our ethnicity, our sexuality, or anything other than Christ, we become incapable of loving people who don't belong to that tribe. We feel threatened by them because we've decided that what our primary means of identifying ourselves is going to be, and whoever doesn't affirm that is not my friend. And whatever truly defines you will show itself, if you're a Christian, by how you deal with Christians who disagree with you about things outside of genuine faith. My question for us today would be, how would you define yourself? Are you a Christian who happens to be fill-in-the-blank, or are you a blank who happens to be a Christian? It's an important distinction, because whatever comes first in your life is going to dictate who can you tolerate worshiping with. If you're a Christian, your tribe is supposed to be, your primary identity is supposed to be as a follower of Jesus willing to walk alongside other followers of Jesus, genuine children of God who are committed to following Christ and his word. An immature believer has to see God as absolute about things that aren't particularly clear from Scripture. An immature believer sees genuinely gray areas as black and white. Spiritual immaturity insists that people are either on your team or they are your enemies. It is threatened by neutrality. And that kind of immaturity almost always divides a church rather than unifying it around the gospel of grace. We discovered this last year, almost a year ago, when our current president was elected, we had people who left our church on, from both ends of the political spectrum. One group thought we weren't supportive enough of our president and thought some of the things I had said indicated that I was a flaming liberal. We also had people who were liberals who thought that we weren't supportive enough of the protest against the current president. And so therefore, since their identity was found in their particular issues, they couldn't worship with anybody who didn't agree with them. And so they left our church, which is ironic because 
I see us as very non-political. I see our agenda as spiritual in nature, and I see the kingdom that we're proclaiming transcending any one particular national movement or government. I think the kingdom of God transcends every country. I think Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, and I think we are secret agents of his working for the transformation of society into something that would glorify him by our lives. Interestingly, I've been around Christians who were conservative because I was from the South who said they wouldn't go to a church because they, they knew the pastor actually liked President Obama. I heard a Christian say that. We're not even going to go there, clearly. But I've heard the same thing. I heard a Christian pastor a couple summers ago. Carol and I were at a conference, and this pastor said he was more progressive, liberal in his political take, and he said, if you're not on board with this, I don't even want to be in fellowship with you. I mean, it was, you're on my side or you're an enemy. This is where you find out what your true identity is. I can't tell you how, and I don't know that I need to tell you, the level of arrogance associated with that kind of position. It would presume you would genuinely need to believe that there is no chance you could be wrong. And you would have to look at others and think they are either ignorant or just evil. This is the danger of improperly identifying as anything but a Christ follower. You potentially or likely cut yourself off from people who could actually be a great encouragement to you because of some secondary issue that doesn't define your primary existence as a child of God. Who are you? That's question one. Question two is, what is your purpose? Or why do you do what you do? So the delegation heads out into the desert. They go up to John. They want to know who he is. He tells them who he is. He said in verses 23 through 28, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. JTB makes it clear that his purpose is to make straight the way of the Lord. The Baptist says to them, I baptize, but what my baptism is, baptism is pales in comparison to the one who comes after me. The question they ask is, if you're not any of these people with, you know, our sense of what is authoritative, then why in the world would you be baptizing? Somebody who would normally be baptizing would be baptizing into being a follower of theirs, almost like a cult leader. And John says to them, I baptize not because I'm getting them to follow me. I baptize them to, as a preparation for what's coming. Uh, get your heart ready for what's really important. John's whole purpose is to reduce himself. And one of my favorite scriptures in John will come in the third chapter uh, about John the Baptist, but I'm going to save it. Uh, 
And I got to tell you, it's amazing because John sees with clarity, unlike so few. John sees with clarity. My purpose in life is to be small so that he can be big. My purpose in life is to exalt Jesus. The delegation from Jerusalem doesn't understand him. Even the way they ask the question makes you think, you must have some authority to baptize. But then John doesn't really even answer their question again. Instead, he contrasts it in verses 33 and 34 of John 1, which says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me. So he's talking about his call from God. And he says, God told him, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptized with the Holy Spirit. So even what John was doing, he's saying, my baptism is nothing compared to the baptism that's coming, which is a baptism of the Spirit. He's speaking of Jesus coming to redeem us so that the Holy Spirit, as we talked about a couple weeks ago and last week, could live within us. We would actually be birthed, baptized by the Spirit. The Spirit comes to live in those who know Jesus. John makes it crystal clear that his purpose is to prepare the way for the Lord. He purposes to glorify Jesus and says, He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John the Baptist's purpose was to make Jesus clearly seen. And this is a command that Jesus issues to all of his disciples, and that includes those of us who've come 2,000 years later. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our application of John in this case is to is that our purpose in life is bound up with announcing Christ to the world. Regardless of what you do for a living, your purpose in life is that others may see Jesus through you, that you may know him, that you may enjoy him, but that you may glorify him, which means that others would see your life, they would see the way you love, they would see the way you conduct yourself, and they would say, I see Jesus in that person. One way you see that is in our New City Catechism when we said, how and why did God create us? And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. We do this in a variety of ways. Some of it's through serving, some of it's through giving. One way that our church is committed to following Jesus is through the proclamation of the good news of salvation in Christ. The scriptures testify that apart from faith or dependence or reliance upon what Christ has done on the cross to pay for sins, people will spend eternity without God paying for their sins themselves. Jesus didn't just come to give us ways to love each other better or to demonstrate what it means to be sacrificial. Jesus came to pay a penalty, and he did so, and Depend on him. When you say, forgive me, Lord, I recognize my need for forgiveness, does that payment apply to your account? 
we as a church believe that God has called us to proclaim this every bit as loud as we proclaim anything else that is contained in the New Testament. That's why John, when seeing Jesus, would call him the Lamb of God. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then he's called Christians to be his witnesses, like John. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 says, When they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And as a very quick aside, if you'll permit me, this should give you caution if you're fond of watching the TV evangelist types who are going to give you specific dates for Jesus' return. Um, Jesus told his disciples, it's none of your business. I continue, and thank you for allowing me that detour. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. A spiritually mature person or a spiritually mature church will see growth in grace and knowledge about God, which we categorize in our church world here as revived believers, as the first step towards telling others about salvation in Christ, which we call reaching friends, and to the role of facilitating transformation in the world, which we refer to as renewing culture. Knowledge is not the end in itself. Spiritual maturity is not the accumulation of correct theology, but also the living out of the gospel so that people can actually see Christ in you. Rick Warren wrote this, quote, Jesus taught that spiritual maturity is never an end in itself. Maturity is for ministry. We grow up in order to give out. It is not enough to keep learning more and more. We must act on what we know and practice what we claim to believe. Impression without expression causes depression. Study without service leads to spiritual stagnation. In this new year where I am excited about working out again and eating correctly again, uh, I've begun to discover again that the path to physical health is a combination of what you take in and the exercise that you put out. Uh, unhealthy people just keep taking it in. They do no exercising at all. The flip side of that, though, is that there are plenty of people who, and I knew a young woman in high school who was, had a severe eating disorder, and she could run forever, and, and she never ate enough food. And it was killing her. But boy, she could run 10, 20 miles at a stretch. Healthy people balance both those things. And, and churches do as well. They have a healthy balance of genuine gospel diet, scriptural food for the soul. But a church will become actually really ugly and kind of sluggish if it doesn't take it to the streets, so to speak. And there's a great picture of this just in the waters that are used for John's and Jesus' baptisms. 
John was baptizing outside of the Dead Sea. Uh, and, and Jesus was doing a lot of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. Both of these bodies of waters draw from uh, the Jordan River. The difference is, is that the water that flows into the Dead Sea doesn't go anywhere. It just accumulates. And when you see what's around the Dead Sea, it's no vegetation, no life, not the greatest place in the world to live, just a stagnant body of water. You contrast that with the Sea of Galilee, and that's where people fished because fish loved it. It was fresh, clean. Water came in and then out, and there was a natural balance that took place there. There's vegetation and plant life on the shores. There's a fruit that would be a part of a life that is both receiving and giving. And this is really the call of the Christian. It's to find our identity in Christ. Absolutely, we receive from Christ. We are his children. That is who we are. But we will not be healthy as believers or as a church if we don't say, what is my purpose? My purpose is to flow out and to demonstrate Christ in how I live and in how I impact the world around me. This is John the Baptist's first lesson for us in the Gospel of John. Who are you? What do you do? What is your purpose? These questions are answered in the affirmative. that We are the children of God, here to love each other really well so that others will see him in us. Let's pray to that end, shall we?